mentioned the issue of Taiwan's stability for the first time in its annual defense white paper. Japan's 2021 defense white paper drew attention when released in July, not least because of the mounted samurai warrior on the cover. Many commentators noted the inclusion of language about Taiwan being important for Japan's security, especially coming soon after remarks by Deputy Prime Minister Aso Toto that an emergency in Taiwan could present a survival-threatening situation for Japan. Japan needs to defend the island with the United States. As with other news related to Japan's self-defense forces, constitution, arms sales, or training drills, the white paper was framed in the familiar media narrative of examples of resurgent Japanese militarism and signs of Japan abandoning pacifism. Japan has already begun to rearm itself in ways never seen before since the end of World War II. Drills have been held in a public display of the country's growing military power. Scores to strengthen Japan's military capabilities. Controversial military expansion and to increase or strengthen Japan's militarism. Japan is reinforcing its military might under the new leadership. Shifting away from pacifism. Yet, despite foreign media headlines, can we really say that Japan is embracing militarism or that people in Japan are abandoning pacifism? Why is the foreign press so quick to raise the alarm about Japanese militarism? What kind of structural factors within Japan prevent a real resurgence of Japanese militarism? And how does Japan present a new model of international relations based not on military power, but on human security? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on foreign media coverage and Japan's post-war pacifism, I talked with Dr. Tom Lee, Associate Professor of Politics at Pomona College and author of Japan's Aging Peace, Pacifism and Militarism in the 21st Century, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. I started by asking Dr. Lee to respond to recent news coverage of Japan and Taiwan and whether or not it suggests an increase in Japanese militarism. There's a lot of media coverage right now about the place of Taiwan in the most recent Defense of Japan white paper. And it's true, Japan may have crossed a certain bright line in that it talked about Taiwan as a major concern and positioning Taiwan into broader regional security. But I do think we could examine it in a different kind of way as well in that if we look at previous white papers, 2020, 2019, Taiwan's mentioned in all of them. And if you go to specifically the Taiwan section, it's basically a copy and paste. Uh, the forward is a bit different. And some of the language as it contextualizes Taiwan is a bit different about the importance of regional security. But the concerns about China remain the same. And so I don't know if it's a new trend in that it's still related to Japan's concern with a rising China. And the sections on China get more detailed and larger with every single defense paper over the last decade. So in some ways, talking about Taiwan in a new broader way is a natural extension of that. So I don't know if Taiwan independently has become more significant for Japanese security policy. It's really discussion or commentary about China. So is this position on Taiwan absolutely new? Absolutely not, right? Because there has been statements in the past by Japanese defense officials and the government that they would defend Taiwan. And it drew controversy in the past. But that kind of language has been kind of quiet and has been quiet for a few years now. So it is surprising to see it come back, or it seems new, because it, it hasn't been an issue for a while. When it comes to increased Japanese nationalism, I mean, how many times are we going to have this conversation, right? I mean, it's Abe's not around anymore. So if we're going to say Japan's increasingly militarized, what is the variable or factor 
that makes the current situation more militaristic or nationalistic than the previous administration. No one's tying it to the Suga administration. No one's tying it to any specific actor in government. No one's tying it to any specific trends in Japan that explains it. It's just looking at Japan mentions this in the defense paper, and then China is becoming aggressive or China is increasingly strong in the region. And so therefore, we can conclude that it's an example of increased nationalism or militarism. And I think there needs to be a little bit more work done to prove that point. And speaking of new factors, in your new book, Japan's Aging Peace, you describe some of the challenges facing Japanese security in East Asia. But it's not only things like North Korea, China, or territorial disputes, but other material factors such as Japan's demographic crisis and even ideological ones like Japan's post-war peace culture that constrained the self-defense forces. Can you talk more about the demographic issue and, and what impact these kind of structural factors have on Japanese security? Yeah, Thanks. Thanks for the plug. That's awesome. Uh, so if you look at the demographics issue, it's a major concern for the Ministry of Defense. If you look at the page count concerning the population issue, recruitment, and issues related to it, such as how do you increase the amount of women in the self-defense force? How do you improve work-life balance? How do you deal with depression and, and all those kind of things that are affecting the human resources of the self-defense force? That's a major concern for the ministry. So how would this affect Japan's ability to project power? Well, one is the declining population. And what's really important is the decline in the working age population has profound effects on the defense force. One is you're not going to meet your recruitment quotas. And Japan never has. And it's going to be difficult for them to do so. Just recently, the country had fewer than 1 million births for the year. So that means when you start recruiting them in 17 years, you're going to have to recruit about a percent of the entire population. And that's including men and women of this new class of children into the, the military one day. And that doesn't sound like a lot. But if you think about all the pressures that will draw that human resource away from the military, that the regular economy and things such as that, you're, you're very unlikely to be able to recruit the, the numbers that you need. So if you don't have the bodies, then you just got to tax people so you could pay for fancy equipment, high technology. But as the population ages, your population will be increasingly overtaxed and overworked, right? And before every two retired people, you only have one young person working on their behalf. And then that one young person's also probably taking care of the one young person that they're raising, right? So one person's going to be responsible for three people. And so the population crisis makes it really difficult for Japan to get the financial and human resources to meet big ambitions of balancing against China, defending Taiwan, patrolling the seas, dealing with North Korea, dealing with climate change and the need to use the self-defense forces for that, dealing with global terrorism. All these issues require resources that I think Japan doesn't have because of the human resources crisis. Japan's most precious resource, and I would argue for any country, would be its people. Japan's had peace for over 75 years. So even then, and, and you have to really make a good case for the country to shift direction and then also to tax the people more. I mean, they could barely get a 5% increase on the consumption tax without significant blowback. So how are you going to get the public to either send their children to war or tax them more and spend more than 1% of the GDP on the defense budget? I, I just don't think there's much political room to do that. 
That's a great point about Japan has had peace for 75 years and it's not going to change overnight. But that's certainly not the impression we get of Japan in the foreign media, where we see all sorts of stories about Japanese militarism, new defense deals, or as you were saying, white papers with samurai on the cover. What do you think explains this disconnect? Why is the foreign press so quick to raise the alarm of Japanese militarism? Yeah, that, that's a good question. It's a funny one, because to answer it, it, it does kind of paint the West or the United States in a bad light, but uh, that's where I land. I want to make clear, in the book, I argue that Japan's not a pacifistic country. Japan has a self-defense force, and a basic reading of the Constitution knows that the, the self-defense force violates the Constitution. But everyone in Japan basically accepts that it has a right to defend itself. Even China and South Korea and North Korea and all the countries that Japan colonized recognize that right. Right, because it's basically the Geneva Convention's idea of like the right to self-defense overrides Japan's constitution. And so even Japan's former colonies recognize that. So Japan's willing to use force, but the circumstances in which it's willing to use that is much more narrow. And so for the United States, the circumstances in which it's willing to use force is much more broad. So when you see Western media and Western analysts look at Japan, I think they're really looking at it through the lens of the United States who sees a fire and needs to put it out right away. Whereas for the government of Japan, they've been promoting a human security concept for a long time. So it's not just fighting terrorists and pushing back and balancing against powers, but also it means ODA and investing in other parts of the world, ensuring people have water and the human security dimension. You know, if you read the Japanese diplomatic blue book and other government documents that's not defense related, they emphasize that you know, if you could create human security, that leads to regional stability as well, right? So let's do a thought experiment. So say if Taiwan was a very poor country and you know it lacked basic resources that's necessary for its survival and stability, and Japan instead of saying we need to defend Taiwan against China, we will send them or Japan, the Japanese government will send them billions of dollars in aid in order to stabilize Taiwan so you don't have a refugee crisis and you don't have mass starvation and all the instability that comes with a weak state. No one would bat an eye and say, wow, Japan is becoming so militaristic. So the framing of you know, defending Taiwan for regional security is not so different than what Japan has done for decades, which is try to increase stability and security around the world through a multitude of tools. And you know, defending Taiwan might be one of them, but within the context of disaster relief, humanitarian assistance, official development aid, Japan's always been pretty active in trying to increase regional security. You made a comment before that you wanted to make sure to clarify that Japan is not a pacifist country. And this is something that other political scientists have pointed out in previous episodes. But this does seem to conflict with the anti-war, anti-nuclear culture that the Japanese public has really embraced in the post-war period. Could you explain what is the difference between these two things and how can we reconcile the seeming contradiction? You know, countries are complex, right? When we say Japan is something that, that or the United States a certain way, that doesn't make sense, right? If we look at domestic politics, there's competing forces, and a country's always negotiating with itself on how it wants to present itself around the world and how it should behave. So if we look at Japanese peace culture, it really is an aversion to the use of military force, which, technically speaking, that's true for everybody. It just seems like some countries get there sooner than others. You know, there's this big debate amongst former colonies is that is Japan really sorry because the prime minister sometimes visits Yasukuni Shrine and you have old guys in government saying insensitive things and it just makes Japan look like it's not really sorry. And then people link that to they must be nationalistic and then they link that to it's militaristic and then Japan says something about Taiwan and then everyone starts freaking out and then you see a bunch of articles about the renewal of Japanese militarism. Right? But if we look at Japanese peace culture and how it's practiced, 
that people aren't really interested in using the military to self-defense force beyond a very narrow set of uses, such as defense of the mainland and then sending humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, patrols, and things like that. And so in the book, I explore this peace culture, which has changed significantly. A lot of the research looks at the peace culture in the 1960s and its weakening of political groups in the 70s. But, you know, peace culture has evolved, Japan's holistic view of security. So I spent a lot of time in Hiroshima and everyone just thinks that it must be like an anti-nuclear city and therefore it's, it's peaceful. But what I, I like to look at is the peace education at the museums around the country and peace monuments. So I think those things are quite valuable to understanding the context in which people think about security. So in the United States, we have a lot of war museums and things like that. They don't really have those in Japan, but they have more peace museums in that country than anywhere in the world. Actually, all but two prefectures in Japan has a peace museum. And there's no one peace museum that's more than a two-hour train ride from another peace museum. So it's kind of part of the physical landscape. And if we think about what a peace museum or a peace monument is, it's a physical manifestation of a message which costs money to build, money to maintain, and takes up a physical space in the environment. Most of the time in Hiroshima, in the most kind of valuable part of the city. So it is an expression of importance. The same way in the United States where there's a big fight over Confederate statues and what it means for a country and the values that that says. You could do the reverse and look at the peace culture in Japan. So when the government is trying to justify going to war or balancing against China or spending more in the military, they can make their case. And Japanese people are logical and they'll get it and they'll be concerned about China. But you're debating people that are exposed in their early education where they visit these museums, they learn it in school. So you have to work a little bit harder to convince people that using force beyond the minimal necessary for defense makes sense. And there's a lot of peace education in Japan and a lot of history of prosperity that For a lot of Japanese, it doesn't make sense. Japanese can be annoyed with Chinese behavior when it comes to, you know, incursions into their waters or Chinese rhetoric. But that's very different than saying, well, I'm very annoyed with the Chinese. So double my taxes and I'm going to enlist and do something about this. Right. So there's a big gap between what people say Japan should do. And that's defense analysts and government officials even and scholars versus what the Japanese are willing to do. You were talking before about some of Japan's former colonies and how they react to statements by Japanese officials or even how the media is quick to see resurgent Japanese militarism. In a similar way, one critique of this post-war peace culture that you're talking about in these peace museums is that it's all based more on a Japanese higaisha ishiki, or victim consciousness, rather than kagaisha ishiki, or what we might think of as awareness of guilt. So it's all based on this idea of Japanese as victims rather than the memory of Japanese atrocities. And certainly museums like the Shoakan Hall in Tokyo or other peace museums are said to portray Japanese as victims first and foremost. So how would you respond to this sort of criticism? Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism in that the Shoakan you know, that, that's an interesting museum because it does talk about the suffering of the Japanese. They mention a little bit about the colonization, but not really. The Hiroshima Peace Museum doesn't do it as much either. The Nagasaki Museum does a much better job at focusing on the Japanese colonialism. So there's a couple of developments there. One is, if you look at when the museums were constructed in Japan, half of them were constructed within the last 25 years or so. So they're, they're still building them. The new ones are much smaller, but they're also much more critical of Japanese wartime behavior. 
you're seeing an evolution of the narrative of not just the woe is me, Japan suffered significantly from the war, which it's true, right? All countries suffered from the war. So there's that. There's a critical element in newer Japanese discussions regarding the war. But the mainstream one is absolutely true. It's, it, it does whitewash a lot of the Japanese atrocities that it committed. However, if we're thinking about what does this mean for Japanese security policy, the lesson is war was bad. We need to avoid going to war or getting into unnecessary conflicts. As offensive as it is to former colonies for not being fully apologetic or expressing deep remorse, and people always compare it to the Germans, right? Uh, which, you know, if you read Jennifer Lin's book, Sorry States, that the case on the German apology record isn't as clear cut and linear either, right? It wasn't just from the very beginning they were sorry. And so Japan is negotiating that as well. But true, many of the things that Japanese have done does not satisfy its former colonies. And that's an issue of reconciliation between the two. But that's still very different than saying, well, because they're not sorry in a way that appeases the former colonies, therefore, nationalism and militarism can be converted into something that could be destabilizing or threatening to the region. Because ultimately, I argue the ideological factors prevent Japan from really pursuing aggressive kind of militarisms. But as importantly is that the material factors, you don't have the population, you don't have the money, you don't have the technology to back up a militaristic expansion state anyway. So Japan is constrained and restrained in so many ways that even if it's not what the outside world expects Japan to be, that's their problem. It's not Japan's. Even if Japan isn't meeting the expectations of its former colonies in terms of its apology record or meeting the expectations of its allies, such as the United States, for being more assertive with its foreign policy, that's that's more of a reflection of the outside world than Japan, right? We're interested in how Japan is going to behave, and it's going to behave according to the rules of its own country and society. So the final conclusion of my book is that I really do believe Japan is offering a new model in international relations where not every problem in the world has to be solved militarily, that there's other ways to increase human security. And the Japanese are always negotiating it and holding onto this model in a conflict-prone world. And it always surprises me that it looks like the media, you know, Japanese former colonies, defense analysts are always pushing Japan to militarize. It's like this country was one of the worst colonial countries in the last century, and they turned a new leaf. And everyone's always looking for signs for them or coming up with justifications on why they should go back. And that to me is really tragic that if anything, countries should be copying Japan's model, not coming up with reasons why it doesn't work. I'm Tristan Gruno visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.